This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Anand Bhava, CFO and COO of Reich, and you are listening to CFO Thought Leader Podcast. Enjoy. This is episode 388. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Jeanette Wade entered the C-suite for the first time without a degree. That's right, no bachelor's, no master's. She has since added two Harvard University degrees, overseen a massive technology transformation, and today has a total of three CFO tours of duty. What more can a finance leader ask for? Our discussion with CFO Jeanette Wade begins after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are, a majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Link data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. Executive Office of Technology Services and Security for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Jeanette, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Good to have you with us. As always, we like to ask our guests to begin by first looking back and telling us a little bit about themselves and what exactly were those career experiences they helped prepare them for a CFO role. What comes to mind? Certainly. So I would say that, that three words describe the milestones uh, to this point. Uh, establishing skills, understanding leadership values, and then education. So 
Finance actually found me. Early in my career, I was tapped by financial leadership to bring organizational and transformational skills to the general accounting department where information wasn't being disseminated in a timely manner, it wasn't being consolidated or evaluated. I wasn't an accountant, but the controller joked that he could teach me accounting 101 on his whiteboard. Um, he wanted to approve the department's contributions to the business with accurate and timely information on a consistent basis, and he wanted to build partnerships with non-financial areas. So using those types of skills were right up my alley. Um, the second thing is values. I joined an organization with a core value structure that emphasized open and courageous communication and risk-taking. This type of empowerment allowed me to add my own ideas and to reinforce the idea that my team could add thought capital and lead from any role in the organization. This was really amazing. Um, it helped drive the business to new heights, and it helped develop leaders from all parts of the organization. And then lastly, I would say education, and I didn't say that first because um, after 15 years of hard work, I had risen to a C-suite level without corresponding academic credentials. Yes, no degree at all, just a lot of good old-fashioned hard work. I had a great skill base. I had been taught leadership values and then what it really meant to put those to work. But I was missing the benefit of not only sound and practiced academic exercises in my field, but also cutting-edge tools to be gained from an advanced master's program in business financial management. So I think combining skills and values and education and having the right tools really um, prepared me to be in the role that I am today. Now, there's a few things worthy of note here. Um, first, that that's really unusual. Just to repeat a piece of what you just shared, you climbed the ranks of finance executives without a degree. And then uh, when you did earn a degree, you earned two, the second being um, in business management finance, uh, which was awarded in 2015 um, by the by the local trade school. I should add, by the way, otherwise known as Harvard. Uh, you uh, you worked and you also worked in the upper reaches of management the entire time you pursued your studies. So uh, perhaps a, a PhD? Uh, why not? Uh, I mean, you seem to have this uh, degree thing down. So can you tell us something about your experience at Harvard? <laughs> um, so um, I, the Harvard community is unique. I would tell you that it, um, from the very beginning uh, with my bachelor's, um, it was like becoming part of a family. Um, and, and I think a lot of people I've spoken to, their alumni experience feels like a family. The, the university tries to stay connected. You have lifelong friends. Um, I really got that from the beginning, and maybe it was because I was an adult, um, you know, and not an 18-year-old as an adult, but an older uh, uh, contributor, that immediately you were surrounded by um, the community of Harvard that is the most outstanding thing to me. Um, and I think the answer is yes. I have toyed with the idea of going back for a Ph.D. and um, would consider Harvard as probably my top option if I were to do so. I'd love to uh, find out what you'd like to study. However, I have to circle back uh, for our uh, listening audience and find out about your CFO tours of duty, of which you've already had three, and these are interesting organizations. Um, 
Can you retrace your steps for us from one CFO office to the next? Certainly. So uh, this is my third CFO engagement. Uh, the first one was for the Massachusetts Regional Transit Authority. Here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, we have um, many transit authorities. The most popular and well-known one is the MBTA in Boston. And the second largest one is MART, which is the Massachusetts Regional Transit Authority. And they are the second largest because they provide over 70% of the health and human services transportation um, for veterans and handicapped, uh, disabled, and elderly. So that was their first leadership role. Um, they were expanding. Uh, they had a significant asset base. They had major responsibilities uh, from a compliance perspective with federal grants. Um, and they had some internal control uh, thresholds that they needed to improve upon. So that was my first CFO engagement. Um, my second one was for Vantage Deluxe World Travel. I had previously um, worked in the travel and tourism space for an international tour company for seven and a half years, um, which is where the value structure I referenced previously um, existed. Um, so I knew the industry pretty well. Um, I had just completed my master's, um, as I referenced, going back and getting um, that in business financial management and was recruited into the role there. It was an international tour company, approximately $250 million, uh, very fast-moving. And the interesting thing about that role was um, they cater to an older demographic. Um, they help elder Americans travel on organized tours internationally. They were relying upon a rather outdated marketing um, program, specifically um, catalog marketing. And so we engaged in shifting to a digital marketing strategy and employing best practices and data analytics because the, despite the demographic, the behaviors of that demographic and the customer experience was changing dramatically. So shifting to a digital marketing structure um, in, it resulted actually in about 11% increase in sales uh, within the first few months of making that shift and making our content um, and our product much more accessible. Now, your career has intersected both the public and private sectors, which is also pretty unusual. I, I wonder, do you look at the CFO role differently from one sector to the next? So, um, I have contributed in both arenas. I will tell you what is most exciting about my existing role is that the pacing is much similar to a startup than it is to a what people generally think of as a government entity. We are fast. We are moving quickly. We're in the technology space. The energy in the team and the organization and the executive office um, is very similar to a private entity. So, um, despite growing up as a basically a corporate contributor, um, I am really enjoying this public sector role because of the impact that we can make, because of the impact that technology is having on each and every single organization, public, private, um, you know, nonprofit or otherwise, technology and every technology decision that every single company makes in the world today is being impacted by technology. So help us understand uh, your view of the world. What are those those metrics that you're paying close attention to? So the uh, the executive office of technology is is having that impact. 
Certainly. So we are in the middle of a transformation. Um, we are looking to consolidate um, IT resources from the Commonwealth and be, uh, right now we're really decentralized and we're looking to centralize our, our core computing services. But our business is providing core computing services to the various secretariats and agencies of the Commonwealth of Mass. Um, we care about internet availability and uptime. Um, we care about core availability, the availability or uptime of internal core transport networks. Um, those are our significant measures. We have um, nurses in the hospitals that rely on internet connectivity on their carts. Um, we have public safety people who rely on connectivity. We have transportation people who rely on connectivity. So we are providing core computing services and we need to ensure that the 40,000 employees that work for the Commonwealth of Mass um, can be at work and actively at work supporting the citizens of the Commonwealth. Our main focus in consolidating right now, um, because technology affects uh, the security really of all of us and all of our decisions, um, and it's illustrating rapid pace advancement uh, with corresponding costs and also those security vulnerabilities that can impact any organization. Um, we believe organizations are becoming increasingly vulnerable to cybersecurity threats because of unnecessary complex and unstandardized infrastructures that have just grown over time, I think, in every organization. Um, so the decentralized and fragmented nature of an organically growing internal IT organization can lead to poor performance. That's what causes me concern. I. Um, I care about the costs. I care about security vulnerabilities, which ultimately lead to costs. Um, you know, having a decentralized, uh, organically grown e IT organization can result in extra work delays and costs. Immature practices can limit information sharing. Um, limited project monitoring around IT can result in large failed projects. Um, so all of these technology components really impact the financial viability of an organization aside from sales. So who is the customer for the Office of Technology Services? Certainly. So there are uh, 151 uh, agencies in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that roll up to a uh, secretariat, uh, centralized secretariat group. Um, we service those agencies. And we provide network and hosting and uh, digital services. The mass.gov website for the Commonwealth of Mass um, is supported by our digital team. Uh, we undertook actually a really large uh, project, shifting the focus of that entire website to being constituent focused so that when you want to interact with your government, and let's just take a really simple example, you need to renew your license. You want to be able to renew that license quickly and easily. Um, let's say you got laid off from your job and you're applying for unemployment. You're, you know, you're in a vulnerable time. You've lost your job. We don't want that to be a difficult experience for you. We want the functionality to be easy and we want you to be able to easily navigate. Um, so we um, had a huge project rewriting the content for the website and partnering with all of those agencies I just mentioned to shift the content so that it's constituent focused so that the people who go to our website, who 
live in the Commonwealth of Mass can do their transactions and interact with their government easily and find information they need easily. You want to get your fishing license at springtime. You want to go fishing. You don't want to have to go through 10 different pages to find where you can renew or, or get a fishing license for this year, rather. You'd like to be able to do that easily. So we, we touch all of those uh, pieces. You've already mentioned uh, several times about uh, adopting new tools and, and technologies, and I want to find out uh, how that uh, the, the adoption of those tools allowed you to drive change within the organization. What would you share with us? Yeah, so it's interesting because when I joined the um, organization, I didn't necessarily have to reorganize my team. I, I wanted to really modernize the way the team worked with tools and processes. So I looked at the bandwidth of the group and added additional management structure. But really what I wanted to do was ensure that we had increased access to data and that our team had advanced abilities to jockey and analyze that data. So we've implemented uh, business intelligence tools to help us get out of the data aggregation um, business and get into the data analysis business so that we continue to drive this. I think for us, from a technology perspective, not just the finance team, but overall, and I think impacting both public and private sector, the migration from on-premises IT infrastructures to the cloud is going to have the greatest impact on the finance function in the future. It will not only provide the opportunity to reduce operating costs, but will reduce the reliance on antiquated support models. Um, and in conjunction with this, it's going to be critical for finance teams to ensure that they have the right financial talent, that have a combination of strong accounting and modeling skills combined with an understanding of technology to perform that business intelligence. So it's no longer okay to just be an accountant. You have to be um, technology savvy. Um, and I think equally important um, from a traditional structure, it's important to have a strong contracts management team because a lot of the on-premises technologies that organizations have to run their businesses are supported by expansive IT maintenance and support models, and those will no longer be required, so those contracts will need to be unspun. Um, and that's not unique to the public sector. That's both private and public. Now. Jeanette, part of how uh, I learned about you was uh, you delivered a, a presentation at a, at a recent uh, CFO Rising, I think just on this topic of transformation. And I was curious, what uh, was the response uh, from the audience? And curious to hear what your, your feedback may have been. Well, you know what's interesting for me is that I had sort of given my presentation and, and had taken a couple questions and had already stepped down off, off the podium and was headed back to my seat. And several people were um, who were um, residents of the Commonwealth versus people who had flew, flown in from other states um, were expressing um, gratitude that the Commonwealth is really focused on these types of things. And I'm not sure how much people are aware of that and, and that we're focused on it. This is the realization of the promise of e-government. So it's the piece about, you know, really we're looking to improve the way people interact with government 
and make that easier and more accessible for people who need to obtain services, such as renewing a license or getting a fishing license or, you know, people who have lost their job who really need help. I think focusing on trying to make it easier to interact with government and, and at the same time reducing costs and at the same time understanding that with the rapid pace of technology that, you know, everyone needs to enhance their cybersecurity position. Um, you know, those things seem to be impactful to the audience. We always like to ask for what we call a finance strategic moment, which is uh, sometime in the past, it might have been in your present role or earlier, uh, when your lines of sight into the organization allowed you to see either an opportunity or a risk, uh, but change the direction of the organization in some way or influence. Anything come to mind? Well, we briefly spoke about changing Vantage Deluxe World Travel from a um, catalog marketer to a digital marketer and impacting sales by um, 11% as a result of that by understanding that the customer experience with the organization was changing and being cognizant of that. I think one of my favorite uh, examples, though, is um, leveraging emerging banking trends. So uh, we were offering different payment methods for customers to um, pay for services at one of my previous organizations, and emerging banking trend in the time, and I might be dating myself, but approximately 13 years ago, um, ACH payments or direct debits to your banking account were just starting to occur. And the organization took a risk and decided to go ahead and see if that would impact the base of customers and if they would adopt that. It was really very new. Um, and so I established a whole testing uh, organization around that, and it played out, and it ended up reducing costs for the organization around $7 million a year in credit card fees just by staying on the cutting edge of emerging trends, whether it's banking or it's customer experience or it's technology, I think it's critical for all CFOs to always keep that mindset that if you're seeing emerging technologies occur and emerging trends, that it really is important. Um, and it's sort of almost counterintuitive to a traditional CFO career path, right, where you're, you might be a CPA, control is really your focus, that you have to be able to take risks. And, and I believe that that's really important, and you have to explore emerging trends. So um, I really like that example. Um, I like that it saved a lot of money <laughs> um, from a materiality perspective for that organization. Thought Leader listeners, we're about to ask CFO Jeanette Wade to enter the mentoring round with us after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, we're going to enter our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire, 
uh, future finance leaders as well as your peers. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? The opportunity to leverage the incredibly fast rapid advancement in technology to inform the business to make really fast decisions to drive growth. Now, is there a piece of advice you wish someone had given you before you stepped into your first CFO role? Thinking back, is there something you wish someone had told you? I think I wish someone had told me that part of my responsibility was being an advisor to the CEO. So I knew my financial role, I knew the results I needed to deliver, but I think that advisory piece, and not strategic, but just advisory, um, that would have been helpful to understand ahead of time what that expectation was because that was different than contributing at a manager or director or even a VP level role, was really advising the CEO directionally where the organization could go, should go, might want to go. Um, that would have been helpful. Now, you have a, a personal habit you believe has contributed to your professional success? Um, being a direct communicator and working hard. Let me ask about communication because, again, you, you do some public speaking uh, over time. Is that something that, that came to you, or uh, did you always have this uh, ability? I think it's part of my DNA. I actually don't love public speaking, <laughs> um, but I think being um, – Taking risks, not really not putting boundaries around myself, um, and willing to take one more step than I thought I could, and incorporating risk in traditional financial roles, um, where you can leverage emerging trends um, and and take the business to a new place by trying new things and always paying attention to the customer. Um, I think that is sort of part of my DNA. Jeanette, we're always interested how finance uh, professionals are able to, to network and build their, their connections, particularly in the CFO world, which I think is sometimes can be challenging to get out of the office and do that. How, how have you networked over time? And I, Boston is, is a great networking uh, city, I would imagine, but any, anything you can share with us? Um, sure. So uh, there's a, a local group, uh, the Boston Treasurers Club, that I participate in. Um, that gets me out of the office. It connects me with uh, peers. Um, it introduces speakers who I always have a takeaway that I can bring back to the office. So that's been terrific. Um, from a national uh, perspective, there's the Financial Executive Networking Group. Um, and then the Harvard Alumni Group, I also participate in the regional uh, group out in Worcester. I want to just circle back to uh, part of what we were discussing earlier, which is this your, your unusual uh, career path. I say unusual. It's just different from so many of the uh, finance executives we speak to, which one of the things they do have in common is just focus – from an early part of their career, they're very focused, and, and that might be, you know, on the accounting track or what have you, but it seems to be, you know, it, it seems to have been decided at a fairly early stage. From you, I get a sense that 
you could have gone many different, taken many different paths. No, I'm, I'm certainly not a traditional accountant by any means. I mean, that's probably the first thing I say in any interview is I'm not a traditional accountant by any means. And really, my first love is probably journalism. Um, and I, I have had lots of uh, really interesting freelance writing engagements over the course of my professional financial career, um, but I was not directed. Really? Now, are you writing about finance, or what would you be writing about? Um, so I actually was covering government, local government, for one of the regional newspapers here in the Commonwealth. Um, and I was covering the selectmen's meetings and the finance committee meetings and and just covering government. Well, this is another uh, first among our guests, I have to say, actually. Yeah, I mean, I just did that, you know, so that was sort of like an after hours on the side because I enjoyed writing type of thing. Um, I didn't really segue that into my career other than, you know, the subject matter I was writing about was not dissimilar to what my day job was. <laughs> I, I'm still thinking like there's a missing piece here uh, for what helped uh, get you sort of firmly on the, the finance track. Did you have mentors? Was there a mentor? Um, yes. So um, Richard Inglis, who uh, has passed away, was a strong mentor initially um, early on in my career. He was president of uh, Dun & Bradstreet's European division, and him and his wife um, had retired in my hometown. And uh, he took an interest in coaching me. And any time after I moved to Boston uh, in my early career, I needed uh, direction or advice. He prepped me to ask for my very first raise from my very first boss. Um, and so he really helped me navigate what it would mean to participate in the corporate world um, and what that looked like. And then I would say the controller that I referenced in the beginning that, um, you know, he really encouraged me to take a risk. He saw, I guess, um, raw skills that I had. And he said, don't worry that you're not an accountant. I can teach you accounting one-on-one on the whiteboard. I really want your skills because I think you can help clean up my department. You can build relationships, um, and you can help get this entire accounting group to a different place. So um, he really mentored me as well, and, and I owe quite a, bit of, um, quite a bit of that to him. Now, is there a book you'd recommend uh, to future finance leaders, uh, not necessarily a finance book. Yeah, so um, one of my favorite books, and it is not necessarily a finance book, although it does encompass creating wealth, um, the title is just Bold. Please, tell us more. <laughs> um, it was written by uh, Peter Diamantis and Stephen Kotler, and um, it is an inspirational book on how to go big. Step outside of your boundaries, create wealth, and impact the world. I should have had an interesting follow-up to your mentor question. Uh, if not for that mentor, do you think you would be in a finance leadership role today? Or would you have taken a different path? I may not have uh, ended up where I am if I had not had a couple of uh, people who were really um, – interested in helping me understand how to navigate the corporate world without having uh, the education early on. 
um, I'm not sure. I would have ended up in the same place. Someone with your background, I I think I would have found in the not-for-profit world. Had you Have you looked at that uh, realm as well before? I have not. A- am I right about that, or do, do you think that's a strange uh, comment? <laughs> Well, you know what's interesting is that I'm relatively results-driven, um, and so in the corporate world, what always motivated me was driving results for the organization and seeing, you know, the driving profit or getting a new product out to market or, you know, those types of things. So I'm assuming that those types of rewards would be similar in the nonprofit world, only from a more social service perspective. Well, I hope that's that's okay to ask that question. Sure, I, no, I'm fine. I, that the mentor question. I, I feel as though there's a there's a mystery here. I'm trying to crack because um, it's just that your career hasn't resembled perhaps uh, some of the more traditional tracks that our finance leader guests have run down, and uh, and the guardrails which most of them sort of stay between. Uh, your career hasn't really obeyed in one way or another. So anyway, thank you, Jeanette. And as we come uh, up to our final question, we like to look forward and ask you, over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader? So my priorities are um, really supporting the IT consolidation of um, activities for the Commonwealth to um, reduce complexity, um, enhance the way the constituents interact with our government, and also improve the way the 40,000 people in the Commonwealth are are working. Um, That's by enhancing our digital presence. It's by upgrading tools and providing um, standard desktops, and at the same time, reducing costs or reinvesting a lot of those um, costs that are currently being spent in other places and leveraging those costs and reinvesting them in other uh, areas that will deliver the results I just described. Jeanette Wade, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you, Jack. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.